Well, hello, 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 my friends. Welcome back to the art of paying attention, where paying attention is our endless and proper work. So glad that you are here. My name is Ryan J. Pelton, and I'm so glad to be with you today. We are back, and today we have another fantastic interview with Daryl Stickle. And Daryl is a trust expert. Yeah, that's right. You heard me right. A trust expert. He wrote a book called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. And we're going to have a little conversation about what it means to build trust, what it means to be trustworthy people and why it matters for our leadership, why it matters for our lives, why it matters in our relationships. And I think in a day when trust is at a very low ratio, we don't trust our politicians, we don't trust our neighbors, we don't trust other people, at least that's how it's perceived. And building trust is important uh, for any company, for any ministry, for any organization, for anything that you're trying to build. Trust is a huge part of that. And you're going to really enjoy my time with Daryl. And before we get into the show, uh, depending on when you are listening to this, I've been thinking a little bit about trust of late. Um, perhaps you heard the news report of a shooting in Nashville, another mass shooting couple children were killed, um, someone in the school, um, some injuries, you can go read about it. But when I think about trust, think about who can we trust? Who can we trust to ensure that our children are safe, to ensure that people are protected? And this isn't a rant about gun laws or anything like that, but there is something about Considering the violent nature of our country, considering how we've had a mass shooting almost every day of this year, 2023, the amount of children, the amount of adults, the amount of people that have been injured, wounded, killed because of guns, because of mass shootings, because of really senseless violence is really off the charts. And and we live in a place, at least here in the States, that is like no other place. And so I've been paying attention to that and thinking, what, is, what does trust look like in the midst of that? Who, do, who can we trust to do what is good and what is best for the greater whole, the, the good of our children, the good of our schools, the good of our communities? Because we have a lot of empty promises, a lot of talk, but not a lot of action, a lot of, well, we need to do this or we need to do that. And we just end up fighting and going around in circles. But I think that sometimes we, we lose the, the essence, the heart, the reality of people and family and human lives that are involved in this. And we go to laws and we go to reasoning and we go to try to explain things away. And yet there's a couple nine-year-old kids that didn't come home after school. I think there's a problem. I don't have any answers. I don't know what the answer is, but I think our hearts need to grieve just the, not just the, the reality that these folks, maybe you didn't know them. Maybe they weren't in your community. Maybe it's easy to kind of say, yeah, it happens all the time and just kind of move on. But there should be a collective grieving, a collective sigh, a collective, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Because that could have been your nine-year-old or my nine-year-old or your friend or your family that was affected. It just happens constantly. So I've been thinking about that. 
because I think there is a, a leadership component here. There is a trust component here of who can we, we trust, who can we look to to lead us, to guide us. And I think some of our leadership is lacking and some of it isn't getting us where we want to go because it's full of greed and selfishness and really not about the, the whole and the good and the flourishing of other people. So let us grieve today. If you're a praying person, let us pray today. Let us do what we can today to love and show grace and help where we can. Well, I know that's a heavy note, but I think it's all connected together. All these strands, all these things, and that's what paying attention is about, is to find the different strands and the different connective tissue of how whatever work you're doing or life or where things are headed or, or what's shaping us, how they all kind of connect together. And today, as I talk with Daryl Stickle about being people who are trustworthy and why that matters, I think this is all connected together. So I hope you enjoy my time with Daryl Stickle. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Art of Paying Attention. Uh, I'm here with Daryl Stickle, and I'm so excited to talk to Daryl because he is a trust expert. And if that doesn't get you wondering what that is, I don't know if you're paying attention. So, Daryl, before we get started, what are you paying attention to? Oh, so many things right now. Uh, I'm I'm kind of focused on the place we've gotten ourselves in the world. Uh, the complex problems that we've created for ourselves, uh, things like climate change and race relations and uh, political divides and uh, conflicts and all those things that require collective collaborative action um, to solve. And, and trust levels are the lowest we've ever seen. So that's kind of got me focused. For sure. Yeah, no, those are those are big things. And yeah, I've been... Uh, looking forward to this conversation because I think uh, trust is a probably a theme, a topic, a subject that we don't talk about enough. We talk about it in the negative, uh, as right. as you mentioned, right? It's you know trusted as an all time low. Uh, but you know, as we as we start there, what w- what are just kind of your initial? I mean, we'll we'll get into this deeper, but initial yeah. thoughts of why here and now, why does it feel like there's just a lack of trust in so many of our institutions and communities and big social things of the day? So I, I believe that, that let's start with the definition. Trust is the willingness to be vulnerable when we can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. So there's, there's elements of uncertainty and vulnerability in that definition. And when I think about trust, I think about it as a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. So Uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And if we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if we're beneath it, then we do. And so if you if you think about that model for a second, that means that if uncertainty is high, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate has to be fairly small. And in deeper relationships, the uncertainty starts to decline. The range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. And in deep relationships, there's there's almost no uncertainty. We can be extremely vulnerable uh, and still fit below that threshold. Well, we're not less vulnerable than we've been in the past, but uncertainty was really ratcheted up. And so we see things like the pandemic, where you know the rules seem to change every week because we didn't really understand the virus very well. 
And as our understanding grew and evolved, so did the thinking of those in, in positions of authority. Um, and we had different rules in different locations, <clears throat> different companies, different countries. And it just seemed to fluctuate all the time. It provoked this incredible level of uncertainty for us. And we combine that with changing norms and values, which are, are moving at a fairly rapid pace, changing technology. Um, all of this change has really provoked a great deal of uncertainty, which makes us incredibly uncomfortable. And that's why we're seeing so much uh, struggles with mental health and anxiety. Uh, it's why we're seeing challenges for leaders uh, to transition into you know, from, from what they traditionally were into what they need to become. Um, you know, we hear a lot of people talking about trust and about the, the negative impacts we see from not having enough of it. And very few are talking about what we can actually do to fix it. And so we feel a bit lost right now. No, I really like your, the way you define kind of this idea of vulnerability and trust and uncertainty and how those all kind of work together. Um, I kept, as you're talking, I was thinking about fear, you know, when there's yeah. fe fear that's in there, you know, we don't, tr we don't trust that person or that institution or that answer or, you know, whatever it, it may be, uh, because we don't know the future we don't we have uncertainty or we've seen the past and it didn't go well and so there's there's fear of trusting that person to get us where we need to go or whatever it is yeah um you know going back to just the idea of technology um i, I read this years ago uh that you know if you think of if i think of like my grandparents generation you know and depression era uh their amount of change was so significant you know for them you know the automobile and and you know, eventually, you know, telephones and, and all those kinds of things. But then, you know, even since then, I mean, even in the last 20, 30 years, I mean, it's been astronomical. I mean, when you think of change, right, you think of, you know, internet and you think of cell phones and you think of, it seems like every day there's a new thing, a new technology, AI, you know, you name it. Um, yeah. When does it become like as humans where we just can't experience all of that change in a healthy way? You mentioned men mental health and you mentioned, you know, yeah. What, where do we as leaders decide, you know, maybe too much of a good thing isn't always good or just because we can well, do, do something, we shouldn't maybe do it. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think, you know, where, when does it get to the place where it's not healthy for us? I, I think that was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's not going to, it's not going to change, right? Like it's not going to slow down. It's, it's just going to continue to accelerate. Part of the challenge for us is being more intentional about building relationships. And you know, there's a lot of people talking about trust and how important it is, but not talking about what we can actually do about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was at a conference, uh, a virtual conference that was held at Duke where they were talking about rebuilding trust in institutions. Uh, and they were talking about government and media and AI, you know, technology. Um and they spent hours talking about all the symptoms they're seeing, you know, feeling like we're at the end of democracy and those kinds of things. Um, and somebody finally said, isn't the title of this rebuilding trust? So what do we do? And they, they just looked into the camera and they said, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting in the audience kind of going, ooh, ooh, pick <laughs> me, because that's what I've spent the last 20 years doing. Um, and 
you know, leaders need to evolve and, and develop. We need to be more focused and intentional about communicating uh, than we've ever been. And, you know, part of the, part of the challenge we're seeing in some environments, like, well, let's take politics as an example. You know, there are some sexually transmitted diseases that have higher approval ratings than our politicians. Because, <laughs> um, you know, there's a chance you might have enjoyed acquiring it, and there's probably something you can do about it. Um, but our, our politicians are a result of the context that we've established. You know, would you want to be a politician at this point? I mean, no, because you don't want to throw your family under the bus, right? You don't want to have that kind of scrutiny and, um, and the vilification that goes with it and the violence that might get visited upon those you love, um, so who do we attract to those roles? Well, people who don't really care about anybody else but themselves. Hmm. And it's it's not always the case, but we're getting more of that than we than we need by a long stretch. Hmm. And so uh, partly we need to be thinking about how do we change the rules to benefit us, to act in our interest, and and how do we be more intentional about the way we communicate to actually build stronger relationships with each other. Yeah, I like two things you're saying. One is the intentional piece of, you know, building relationships that takes work, you know, finding solutions, not just having kind of nebulous, like, hey, we need to do better. We need to have more trust. Uh, but you mm-hmm. also said, which is interesting, is you're, you're kind of dealing with the root problems, the the culture that we've created, if you want to use that language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're attracting people that don't only care about themselves or they they don't care if their family gets butchered you know, by the media because, you know, they just want to be king of the land or, you know, whatever, whatever language you want yeah. to be, um, or king of their own kingdom. Um, and, and so, yeah. So how do we deal with the culture that we've created, the, the ethos, the communities, the, the environments, because that's just producing kind of a bad seed, if you will. Um, and, and I love this because this, this is what people typically don't talk about. We never, we don't talk about root causes enough. We just talk about the, kind of the surface thing. Well, we're here, so we just got to deal with it, you know, but not getting underneath those, those layers. Yeah. So um, before we get too, too deep in, I'm, I'm just fascinated by you and your story, because you said you've been uh, working on, uh, you know, you've been a trust expert for 20 years. You've written a book, Building Trust, uh, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Uh, so obviously that something happened or something raised your awareness, uh, something got you excited about this idea of trust. So throw us in the time machine a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about Daryl's story. Like how'd you get here? Yeah. And you're right. Cause my journey really did help shape me. Um, I was, I was born and raised in a small town in Northern British Columbia, Canada, uh, fairly isolated, small community. People had to pull together. Um, you know, you had to, you had to help each other or none of us would have survived. Um, and so there was this sense of community and this feeling like if you could help people, you should. And I carried that with me. Um, now, you know, when I was young, I, I came to realize that I was, I was losing my sight. I'm now legally blind, but I knew I was going to lose my sight. Um, and so I had reached a decision that I was going to have to train my brain to be able to think for a living. And I was playing hockey. I was playing junior hockey when I was 17. I got attacked by a fan with a club and and beaten almost to death. Um, and now all of a sudden, 
I couldn't think at all. You know, I went from being on the honor roll to failing everything. Uh, at the attention span of a fruit fly, it was it was in the mid '80s, so they didn't know much about concussions. And so I struggled mightily, and it gave me an understanding of what it was like to feel helpless and to feel hopeless. Um, and so I I eventually went to school. I went to university. And my path found me at the University of Victoria and I'd be sitting on the bus and a stranger would just come and sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. And so there was something that was triggering that willingness to be open, to be vulnerable with me. And I wanted to understand it. You know, and I I started working with troubled teens and families in crisis and uh, working on crisis lines and those kinds of things to try to gain a better sense And I was moving towards becoming a clinical psychologist when I just realized that a lot of the families I was working with were stuck. You know, it had taken them years to get where they were. Um, Even if I could see a path forward for them, often they couldn't take it. Uh, And I thought this will drive me insane. So I I shifted into public administration, started working in native land claims. And they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? And the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over a hundred years? They should trust us. Hmm. I thought, wow, that's a good question. And it got me thinking about these long-term disputes and, and why they were so resilient and hard for us to resolve. And, and so I went to Duke and I wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. And I had the good fortune of having two of the world's leading experts on on trust from an academic perspective there while I was writing my thesis. And they helped and guided. You know, I, I had some really smart people kind of looking over my shoulder. Um, but when I finished, they said to me, you know, when you first came to us, we said, no way he solves it. It's too complex. It's too big. We'll give him six months. He'll come crawling back. And we'll let him chisel off a little piece of this, and that'll be his thesis. And they said, six months in, you were so far beyond us. We just couldn't help anymore. All we could do was sit and watch. And we think you've solved it. You know, here we are two years later. We think you've actually solved it. And so I went to work at McKinsey and Company, a big management consulting firm. And they said, wow, you've got really good client hands. We're going to send you to the worst places possible. And and so I would end up places where there had been strikes or they really didn't want us there or there was a hostile takeover going on or those kinds of things. And I was getting a chance to apply the concepts that I theorized about in my research. And then I was involved in a car accident, ended up with post-concussion syndrome. Um, And so I couldn't work those hours anymore. But one of my former colleagues came to me and said, I'm head of strategy for a mutual fund company. Just come and help us think about trust and about, you know, sustainable competitive advantage. And so I looked at what they did and I said, well, sustainable competitive advantage means you do something that your competitors don't and that they can't copy. You don't do anything I can't copy. You know, I could buy one share of every fund you have and now I know how they're all built. And so I could sell what you sell at a discount because I don't have to pay the fund advisors. And the CEO looked like I'd hit him in the forehead with a sledgehammer. 
so they they decided at that point you know that they needed to develop a new strategy i said the only thing you can do is build deep long-term relationships with your customers and they said that's it that's our strategy and so i developed a workshop that taught people what trust was and how it works and started working with them on ways to build it with their clients and i've spent the last 20 years doing that with different companies in different settings developing first an understanding of what trust was and how it worked and then getting better and better at explaining it so that people could understand it and now i've transitioned into really focusing on how to help people apply it so it leads to behavior change so that that learning really sinks in no, it's good. I, I I had a had a suspicion just hearing your your passion for this kind of work and because uh, I think it's it's so uh, multifaceted. I think it touches so many different parts of culture and and different disciplines. And you know, you, you talked about a little bit in the business world, but I think you know it's happens in the in the home. It happens, yeah. You know, uh, in our neighborhoods, it happens. You know, in politics, happens in culture, broader culture, whatever. Um, yeah, so it's 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 this thing that that feels kind of intangible, but we know it when we see it. Uh, yeah. So when you you kind of look back on your your work so far, uh, you gave a very extreme example. You said, you know, how do you help you know Native Americans who you know don't trust? I actually have a have a friend uh, who works with Native Americans up in North, actually uh, Ontario, like Northern Canada, and yeah. um, you know, finding out that just some horrible things that happened to. Uh, you know, these communities and here's this white man who's there and it's like, why should we trust you? You know, your people have always just taken from us. And, you know, uh, so, I mean, it seems like his perspective is, well, yeah, it takes long-term intentional relationships. It takes you seeing that I'm not like everyone else, or I'm, I'm trying to do things differently, not perfectly because I can't, I can't change the, can't change the past. I have to, we have to own that. But you know, I want you to see that I'm not here to take, but I'm here to serve. I'm here to help. I'm here to, you know, be with you, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's taken years and years and years. He's been up there a long time. Um, yeah. But when you, when you think of like a, a, a company situation, uh, you know, got this big company, oh, you guys are just all about the money or, you know, why should we trust you with our money or whatever it may be or, or the product exchange or whatever it is, what are kind of the, like the first steps? Like when you start training people, you start trying to equip people to do this kind of work, like in your workshops or whatever, like where do you, where do you begin? So I believe there are 10 levers we can pull to build trust. Um, and, and we all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. And so those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull. Usually it's the ability lever. I have these kinds of credentials, this much background, these types of experiences, yada, yada, yada. Those who are better have multiple levers that they can pull. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. And so what I do is I systematically walk people through, here's the different, I think there are 10 levers. Here's the 10 levers that you can pull. And here's an example of how to pull each one. And so I've told you that trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. Well, there are four levers within uncertainty. And, you know, for us to understand how to build trust, we first need to understand where does uncertainty come from? Well, it comes from us as individuals, but it also comes from the context that we're embedded in. And so the three most prevalent levers are within the literature, 
are benevolence, integrity, and ability. And that comes from work that was done in the mid-90s by a guy named Roger Mayer and his colleagues. And it's it's been replicated. People have changed the names, but basically that's where most of the literature resides. And benevolence is the belief you've got my best interest at heart and that you'll act in my best interest, even if it's not in your own short-term best interest. Integrity is, do I follow through on my promises and do my actions actually line up with the values that I express? And then abilities, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And so for each of those, what I'll do is I'll systematically walk through and I'll explain the lever and then I'll talk about how we go about pulling it. So, you know, I do work with families uh, and I'll be standing in front of a group of parents and I'll say, how many of you have your kid's best interest at heart? All the hands go up. And when I say, when I flip the question, I say, how many of your kids would say that? It's usually about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. And so if it's not obvious that I'm benevolent in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, how do we actually show it in a way that lands if we're a leader or not someone's parent? And so what I do is I'll, I'll prompt people to have a conversation. I'll give them a template. And that conversation goes like this. I heard this guy, Daryl, talking on Ryan's podcast. He was talking about benevolence. He said it's really important for trust. And I think I act that way. Like, I think I act in people's best interest, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the person you're talking to is going to say, yeah, yeah, I've, I've run into that a number of times. And so you're you're priming them now to think about benevolence and what they've tried to do and how it's landed. And now we narrow the funnel a bit and we say, well, have you ever had someone really act in your best interest, like really felt like they had your back? And now we're starting to, to get them thinking about moments when people have looked out for them, when when they've had the experience of someone having their best interest. And that's going to give us clues about what benevolence looks like for them and what matters to them. And then we narrow the funnel still further. And we say, well, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? What does success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What matters most to you? How do I help you achieve that? And now all of a sudden we've created an opportunity to be transparent because we interpret the world through stories. I can now refer back and say, remember when you told me that this is what mattered most to you or that this is what success looked like for you, this is me trying to help you get there. And so there's less room for misinterpretation. There's better communication. It's more intentional. And so we can do that when we talk about benevolence, we can do it when we talk about integrity Ability tends to be our favorite lever, but we still miss. You know, a lot of times we don't actually include the other party in discussing what excellence looks like. You know, for, for you and I, let's say that we were going to try to describe what an excellent podcast guest would look like. Well, I have some perspectives, but you've got perspectives that are as important or more important than mine are. And your audience also has a perspective. And so if we really wanted to know what excellence was, we try to canvas all three of those groups and get a shared understanding of this is what we've been told excellence is. Here's how we're going to try to hit it. And then when we move to context, we can reduce uncertainty by explaining how we're constrained. 
And, you know, when I did work with the Canadian military, trying to help them build trust with the locals in Afghanistan, um, I came to realize that context is actually really primary early on in relationships. It carries the most weight. And then as we get to know the other person, the weights start to shift. But the context is sort of the formal and informal rules of the game that constrain our behavior. And so the more I'm able to explain my context to you, the easier it is for you to predict me, the less uncertain you feel. And so we can pull those. Those are four of the levers that we can pull to try to build trust with somebody else. And so a lot of times I'll start by saying, what are the conversations that we've had? How have we included the other stakeholder? What relationship do you want to focus on? Is it within the organization? Is it the top management team? Is it shareholders? Is it customers? That's where we need to start the conversation and start the level of empathy. This is really good. I I think the, uh, you know, going back to the lever of, I think you said like skills or, or experience or yeah, it seems like that one is, is going away with the dodo bird uh, because I think at least, and again, I, I'm not the expert, you're the expert, uh, but, <laughs> but uh, it, it just doesn't impress like it did, you know, where you could just walk in a room and say, well, I have 20 years experience doing accounting. So you should need to listen to what I say, because I think there's so many other levels to that layers to that because Okay, well, guess what? I worked with an accountant who was at 20 years and he was terrible and he stole my money, you know, um, or, right. or, oh, I have experience in politics. Okay, great. Well, what I see in politics doesn't really build my trust. So that doesn't really seem to be the, right. you know, I have a PhD. So you're a really I, good liar. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're a professional <laughs> liar. So, um, so what, what does it look like? Um, and I imagine, and if you don't have an answer, that's fine. Um, but what, what do you do when trust has been broken? Um, right when, when they're trying to kind of repair that. So, you know, uh, I liked your example of, you know, someone says, well, I'm a very benevolent person. Uh, and then it's like, well, I need to, I need to see receipts of that. You know, what would make you benevolent? And it's like, you can't really point to anything. So it's like, well, by definition, you're not, but, right. um, or the parents that go, well, I, I have my kid's best interest, but everything's points to the opposite. You know, how do you, how do you repair trust when it's already been broken? When somebody looks at it and goes, all this talk of benevolence and my best interest doesn't seem to be there. So what, what does that look like? So one of the things that's powerful, I find, uh, it's a great question and it's, it's a little complex. So I may, it may feel like I'm meandering a little bit mm-hmm. on my way okay. to it. Meander away. Okay. So one of the challenges that we face is actually even talking about trust because it feels fuzzy and it feels indistinct and we have this lack of awareness. And so one of the beautiful things about the, I think one of the things I like about my model is that it gives us a vocabulary. So we could actually say, okay, you say you have my best interest at heart, but this is what I'm passionate about. And I don't see your actions lining up with what I'm passionate about. That's a much easier conversation than saying, I don't trust you. Hmm. Um, and it, it, it leads us to a more direct outcome. But if there's been a violation, if trust has failed us, uh, and, and we've experienced the, the pain of being more vulnerable than we wanted to be or someone betraying us, then the challenge becomes, how do I articulate to you in a way that I understand the pain that I've caused you? So can I take a a crack at telling your story 
in a way that you find acceptable and explaining what my perception is of the harm that I've caused so that I show that I understand what's been done and, and how it's affected you. And then can I say, here's my story of why I did that so that you get a better understanding of what the context was that drove those behaviors or what the personal elements of me are that caused that to happen. So it's easier for you to predict me in the future. And then can we create a shared narrative around how we're going to try to change that? Now, often it's, you know, I get asked, one of the downsides of writing a doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments is you end up in hostile environments. <laughs> um, you know, so I've been asked to come into situations where the parties really don't like each other. And what I tend to do is I say to party one, tell me your story because we interpret the world through stories. So I'll say, tell me your story. What happened? What's going on? And then I separately go and I sit down with party two and I say, tell me your story. Tell me what happened. Tell me what's going on. And then I bring them together and I say, party one, you tell me party two's story. And they make an attempt and it provokes empathy. And so they start thinking about the story, trying to explain it in a way it gives party two a chance to feel like, yeah, they understand me or they don't to correct misperceptions as we go along. And it forces us to create this shared narrative that we can move forward together with. And part of the challenge that we see in environments that are hostile or, or places where promises have been broken or people have been deeply hurt is that there's an emotional response. And I talked to you about uncertainty, vulnerability equals level of perceived risk. What happens after I decide to trust you is a perceived outcome. And because we interpret the world through stories, we can have dramatically different perceptions of the same event. And so if we don't create a shared narrative, there's a chance for profound miscommunications there. But our perception of that outcome has an impact on our next interaction together. In the middle of all this is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike the other person. And, you know, 99% of the trust literature treats people like they're rational actors. And I, I don't know if you've met people before, Ryan, but we're not always rational, right? right? And so if we like someone, we've got a positive story about them, we look for reasons to trust them, we search for confirming evidence of our positive story about them, we're more likely to trust them. We're more likely to see the outcomes as positive, which feeds back on itself. If we dislike someone, the opposite occurs. And so imagine we've got this profoundly emotional state and we're trying these cognitive, rational approaches to trying to build trust. We don't get any traction. And so what we need to do is sort of bleed off some of that emotion by having a shared conversation exploring what the pain and suffering was and trying to work through it. Now, the one thing I recommend not doing is saying, I'll never do that again. Um, Cause that's an integrity problem just waiting to happen. But instead what we could do is say, let's talk together about ways that we could try to set it up so that, that, that that's less likely to happen. And let's create a communication loop that means that we're not going to engage in behavior that hurts each other without giving each other a heads up. 
Yeah, I remember uh, hearing a story probably not too long ago uh, about the shift in politics. Sorry to bring up politics again, but uh, no, it's good. Just you know, politicians from different from both parties, multiple parties, every party really, you know, eating together uh, in the lunchroom, and then you know now politicians saying like parties don't eat together anymore. We don't share our stories together anymore. And you just go, well, okay. So what kind of culture are we creating? And again, that's not, maybe that's a sim- too simple of a solution, but, but I like what you're saying about just sharing each other's stories, getting to actually know, seeing the human, you know, person, the soul on the other side, that's yeah. not just represented by a party or, but you know, they have a family and they have a story and they have pain and they have loss and they have, something about that that really changes your perspective how you see someone else you know even even someone that you've built up as this is my enemy or this is you know, i can never you know be in the same room with them but then you hear their story and you 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 build that like you said we're not just rational we build that kind of emotional connection um it, it is what you're saying a little bit of learning how to say you know i'm sorry learning how to own up to our mistakes to the things we've done. Uh, I don't hear that a lot enough. I mean, in multiple, you know, disciplines, uh, just people just saying, Hey, that, that was my fault. I, I didn't do that. Well, I didn't, you know, it's just from a media standpoint, I don't think we're allowed to say we're sorry. <laughs> you know, we're not. Allowed. Yeah. Everyone's scared about, yeah. uh, about liability. Right. Right. And you're just going, well, that's actually where people start trusting you again and start going, okay, you know, let's see, let's see the fruit of that. But um, it's, it's, it's like a taboo thing. Like just to, for a, for a leader, especially it's like, once you make it to a certain level, it's like, you can't say you're sorry anymore. You can't own up to, it's always yeah. someone else's fault. You know? I think, um, absolutely. There's a component of that. And what I try to do with my sons, uh, my, my sons are the center of my world. They're 21 and 18. Uh, they mean more to me than anything. And what I really tried to do as they were growing up was when I did something I wasn't happy with, I would go to them and say, I didn't handle that the way I would have liked to, you know, I'm sorry about the way that I, I handled that so that they could see me not only fall down, but how I responded as I got back up. And so that they could learn from that, that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to fail. And this is part of the challenge that we're facing now. You know, you talked about the ability lever sort of going the way of the dodo. Well, partly that's because the definition for excellence is a moving target. And, you know, I think that the it's a challenging lever for us to pull now because we have so many different definitions of what good looks like. You know, and, and in the book, I try to talk about the fact that, you know, we can take a look at a polarizing figure like Donald Trump and their actions that he's engaged in were, some subset of the population say, wow, that's real leadership. That's fantastic. And other parts of the population say, wow, that's barbaric and and inhumane. And so we've got these radically different perceptions of what a good leader looks like. And without a clear shared definition, then we can't really measure and we can't strive for. So ability is a lever that that's becoming more and more tenuous for us. Um, integrity is harder as well because things are changing so rapidly. If I'm making promises about long-term commitments, you know, I, I talked to you about the native land claims issue and, and working with, with natives. 
it's hard for governments to make promises because they can't constrain future governments. That's the way the rules are set up. Mm-hmm. And so they can't make commitments that are going to be 10 years down the road because they're not going to be in power in 10 years. And some other government may have a different idea and has the, the power and authority to overrule them. Um, and so I think, you know, benevolence is one of the levers that seems to have the most resilience right now, actually caring about other people. Um, and I, I agree with you that this notion of creating a shared narrative, I mean, we have this tendency to vilify, um, particularly when things go wrong, we vilify other parties to motivate our base, to get people riled up and enthused and engaged. Um, at short term, that's effective. Long term, it's incredibly destructive because it's so hard for us to un unpull that, unring that bell. You know, um, I think that one of the challenges I see a lot with leaders right now is stepping out of what got them to where they are and into the new roles and responsibilities that would make them great. And they, they are reluctant to do that because it feels like a step in vulnerability. Because stepping into new tasks and new roles and new responsibilities, I'm not going to be good at that right away. I'm There's going to be a learning curve. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fail. But what that translates to everyone else is it's not okay to make mistakes. And I don't know how much innovation has ever actually occurred without mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be able to evolve and adapt and innovate but we're terrified of being a little more vulnerable because uncertainty is so high right now. Yeah. I, I wonder because of the lack of trust that there isn't that trying things or like you said, being innovative or stepping out or trying a new path because we're, we're people are too quick to destroy and too quick to say, well, they, I so, told you, you know, it's not going to work. It never works. You know? So everyone's yeah. just kind of, kind of staying back and saying, okay, let's just, we'll play it easy. We'll, we'll kind of go in the middle and, and just play it safe. Uh, yeah. That it, it seems like that the, the trust factor is all woven into that kind of orbit, if you will. Um, it really is. You know, one of the things uh, maybe along these same lines, and maybe, maybe this is a, not a great question. It could be a good one or a bad one, but um, is, you know, I was thinking about navigating, you've mentioned a few times, big change or, you know, someone's leading an organization and I've, I find myself in this, this place often, maybe this is more for me, uh, right. but you're, you're, you're trying to, uh, and I have a friend that's going through this right now, trying to move a, a school in a new direction. And it's, you know, just a, a lot of change. It's a lot of people involved, a lot of staff, a lot of students, a lot of families, you know, you know how that goes. Um, right. You, you know, in your work, is there and this may be a silly question, but is there a timetable? Like how much time are we talking like for, for someone to kind of build that trust? Like if it, if it, if it's a big thing that needs to change. And again, I know you don't need an exact number, but I mean, is there just from your kind of anecdotal experience, you know, does it take a long time? Are we talking years? Are we talking 20 years? You know, are we talking a month? Are we talking a day? You know, what, what are we talking about here? It can be remarkably fast. So I worked with a leader. She was a great leader, um, but she was relatively new on the team that she was leading. She worked in an organization that had a trust measure that they used. And the measure went from negative 100 to positive 100. And she got a score of 13. Not great. Um, You know, not, not hideous, but not great. 
And her boss asked me to spend a bit of time with her. So I did a little bit of coaching, got her up to speed on the levers. We talked through the model. I shared some information with her. And then we had a conversation with her team. And I said, here's what the levers are. You know, so let's, here's, this is what benevolence is. Now, what would she have to do to show benevolence? What does benevolence look like for you? What does integrity look like? What kind of promises has she made? What kind of promises has the organization made? And so we developed this shared vocabulary. Three months later, they did another survey. Her score went from 13 to 80. So somewhere within those couple of months, things turned around dramatically. I've seen the same thing with with parents who are estranged from their kids. Um, Part of this is about creating a shared vocabulary and starting to become more intentional. And it can happen very quickly. So for your friend who's involved in this huge change effort, I would start creating a shared vocabulary and then talking to the different stakeholders and saying, this is the direction I want us to go and here's why I want us to go there. What do you think the best interests of your constituents are? So whether it's families or kids or teachers or administrators, what are some of the concerns that you have? How how do we make this so that it lines up so that there's integrity? You know, these are the values we want to pursue. These are the things I think get us there. What do you think? And so we start to create this shared conversation and trust follows right? Because we start to reduce uncertainty. We start to be able to show that we're doing the things we said we were going to do, why we're doing the things we say we're going to do. You know, because people, I will guarantee you that people have competing stories for the change effort that's going on. Some of them are going to think about that it's about shifting power bases. Some are going to think it's about economics. Some are going to think it's about, you know, protecting the interest of one stakeholder over another. Um, There's going to be all kinds of narratives and stories that are going on there. And so what we try to do is share a framework, create a shared vocabulary, and be able to say, this is the path we're trying to follow. Here's the way we're trying to follow it. And this is the language we're going to use when we talk about this. So if you're feeling like I don't have your best interest at heart, that's what you need to tell me. Well, Daryl, this has been a uh, fantastic conversation. And I think just talking about these issues, these big issues, uh, is going to help a lot of people. Uh, and I, I wanted to maybe land the plane with a, a question and, and maybe it's kind of hitting on some of the things we've talked about thus far. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about, you know, the, the brand new, let's call them a leader, call them a new dad, a new mom, you know, th- they don't have the, the experience. They don't have the feedback at this point, but they're starting something new or they're getting something off the ground. So they, they don't have a lot of, you know, people <laughs> knowing them all that well. Right. But you want to build that trust from day one, right? You feel like that's my value. That's what I want to be about. I think this is good for everyone involved. This is good for the company. This is good for the home. This is good for, you know, what yeah. have you. Where would you say, you know, this is this is how we build that in from day one rather than trying to repair things that have already gone wrong or maybe we're not doing right. so well. But yeah, where where's kind of like the baseline starting point? So whenever whenever I talk about sort of trying to build trust in an initial setting. I talk about being a little bit vulnerable first. And, you know, if you're a new leader, 
than being able to say to folks, hey, you all know that I'm fairly new at this. This is my aspiration. These, the, This is where I want us to get to. So that's a little bit of vulnerability. And saying, I'm going to learn at this as I go. I'm going to get, I'll be a better leader five years from now than I am today. There's no question about that. And I'm relying on the excellence of the people within this group who have functional skills to bring that to bear, to help me create the best experience that we can for each other. That's the way that I would start as a leader. Hmm. As a parent, you know, I, I, uh, helped as a volunteer in parenting classes and I've done some work with parenting classes and those kinds of things. And one of the biggest challenges I see is that, you know, parenting is a skill like any other that we can get better at if we work at it. Mm-hmm. It's so is trust. And so being curious, asking people about things, you know, we get afraid of being judged and there's a level of vulnerability to me saying, you know, this is what I do with my kids. Um, and you know, we need to let go of some of that. Hmm. That's good. Find a safe place to be vulnerable. I think that's good. I, I, it's funny you're saying this cause I, I think I, I see almost the opposite. I think it's maybe insecurity of a new leader or a new parent. It's yep. actually, let me show you why you should follow me and here's my expertise and here's my, you know, not leading with humility or vulnerability and saying, you know what? This the whole thing could fall on its face. Um, I'm new at this. I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to, like you said, I'm going to learn. Um, we're in this together. I'm going to be yeah. honest about things and I'm not going to hide anything. You know, it's, it's funny how maybe that is our own insecurity of thinking like, I got to prove my worth. I got to show that I have the experience and why I'm right. worthy of, you know, leading this thing, whatever this thing is. Um, Compensating. Right. Right. But I, but it's funny because in the end though, like that's what you're going to need down the road. You're going to need those moments of, Hey, I didn't see this right. Or I made the wrong decision or we made a right. bad turn. Or like you said with your kids, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't handle that well. You know uh, it, it's almost shocking when we hear people say that, like I've done it with my kids multiple times and it's like, they almost go like, dad, you're saying, sorry. Usually, you know, usually you're trying to get us to say sorry to each other, you know, or whatever it is. Right. Um, it's like, oh yeah. Okay. You don't walk on water. It's like, no, far from it. So uh, this is one of the ways we model, yeah. right? Okay. We model the behavior we want to see. Imagine as a new leader, you come into a group and you say, here's how I get evaluated. This is what my success looks like. And I need each and every one of you to be successful for the unit to be successful. And here's how that reflects on you. Mm-hmm. And here's how we have a shared interest, an overlap of needs and interests. Because mm-hmm. I got to tell you, Ryan, the more senior we become, the less direct control we have over outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more we depend on the yeah. people we lead. For sure. Well, Daryl, uh, this has been great. Uh, go get Daryl's book, uh, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes so you guys can pick that up. Uh, but before we go, Daryl, two things. One, where can people find you? And also, yeah, what are you working on next? What's the next thing? So I, uh, I'm i kind of excited about a couple of projects. Um, they First, they can find me on uh, trustunlimited.com. There's a blog section there. Uh, with articles and uh, some podcasts. Um, 
they can reach out to me, Daryl at trustunlimited.com, or they can connect with me on LinkedIn uh, at Daryl, you know, Daryl Stickle. Um, right now, I've been asked to help a group that is working with uh, kids who have developmental challenges and trying to build trust with the families of those kids so that they're able to trust the agencies that are trying to help. Um, and a, another project related to that is working with trying to help build social skills for kids. I believe that understanding how trust works is a way to future-proof all of us. Um, because what's looks like excellence is going to change and evolve, but our need to be able to interact with each other and collaborate together is never going to go away. That's good. I like it. I like it. Well, Daryl, thanks for spending uh, the afternoon with me and uh, you definitely are going to help a lot of people. I'm so excited to share this in a few weeks with uh, whenever people hear this. Uh, and uh, yeah, so thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there you have it, my friends, Daryl Stickle. Go check out his work, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. I'll put that in the show notes, his latest book. And I really appreciated his time with us. I really appreciated his ways of helping us understand why trust is such an important part of managing, leading, building a family, building a life, building a company, building an organization, whatever you're building, whatever you're doing, whatever you're into. His trust is a big, big part of that. And I really appreciate his wisdom and his insights into this conversation. And, and the bigger question I think for us is, is how can we be trustworthy people? How can we, not just for a strategic way to, to appear to be trustworthy, but to genuinely be trustworthy, that we are people of integrity. We are men and women of, of integrity. We are people who do what they say they're going to do. People who listen, people who consider the stories of other, other people. Uh, and when there's things that are changing and rapidly changing, we need people that are able to, to stand in that gap and to be those kinds of people. So whether you're a storyteller, you're an artist, you're leading something, you're starting something, you're building something, uh, trust is an important part of that and a part of building something good that helps the greater good. And so thank you for stopping by The Art of Paying Attention. Hey, before we go, just a couple quick things. One, hey, if you enjoyed the show, please share it. Uh, tell your friends. Uh, word of mouth still works. Um, another way to share the show is to leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Uh, and also, if you want to stay updated on all that's going on, all the shenanigans, check out the newsletter on the Substack, ryanjpelton.substack.com. The newsletter every week I send out seven things I'm paying attention to, and that's just a great way to stay updated on the latest podcasts and articles and essays and cool links I'm sharing and, and stuff going on. So check that out. Love for you to be part of the community. And, and if you join the Substack, you actually get the app. You can join. You can actually get the chat feature on the app, and that allows us to interact and ask questions and kind of put a little more human element into the show and into the community and whatever you're building, whatever you're making. I love just talking about that and giving feedback on that and, uh, and just hearing how you're doing and what you're up to and who you are. And, uh, and if you have anyone you'd like me to interview or anybody uh, that's interesting, doing interesting work, paying attention to cool things, important things, uh, please send them my way. Uh, hello at ryanjpelton.com is my email. 
and you can send me an email and I appreciate all those that have done that and I've uh, been able to talk to some amazing people so thank you for that keep it on keep it on coming keep it on coming keep it coming I, I don't know yeah just keep it coming my way well thanks for stopping by the art of paying attention and before I go I do have one important thing to say go make some great art with your life and I'll talk to you real real soon